Welcome to Reality Check, a weekly podcast about anything and everything having to do with education. I'm Jeannie Allen, founder and CEO of the Center for Education Reform. We chose the name Reality Check because a lot of what you read about education these days is often wrong or misleading. If you want to know what's really going on in American education, from K through career, you're going to need a reality check. My guest today is Dr. Dennis Litke, the co-founder and co-director of the Met School, co-founder of the Big Picture Learning Company, and president and founder of one of my favorite most recent institutions, College Unbound. As an educator, Dennis has had an amazing reputation for working up against the edge of convention and out of the box, turning tradition on its head, which of course brings him to reality check because we always want to push uh, the bounds of convention, out-of-the-box thinking here. Um, you're going to hear from Dennis in just a minute about the amazing work he is doing with students and um, kids at all levels, including adults. He holds a double PhD in psychology and education from the University of Michigan. He has worked on the ground as well as uh, had his fight featured in an NBC movie. And uh, I just want to welcome him to Reality Check and thank him for all the amazing work he's done all these years. Welcome, Dennis. Thank you. It's a good title for a uh, podcast. So, Dennis, let me first start with um, the movie. You uh, you worked as a principal in a junior, senior high in Winchester, I believe, New Hampshire. And tell us about that movie. Well, um, when you're on the edge a lot, um, you uh, leave open the opportunity to be fired. And... Uh, and you have to be ready for that. And I took over a job um, in a the uh, uh, poorest town in a poor state of New Hampshire, Winchester, and where the school was a bit out of control and had an incredible amount of students dropping out, no one going on to school. Um, and I took the job and all pieces of data we brought up. I mean, I don't know them exactly now, but they were 10% going to college. We brought up to 50%, which was right for a rural area at that time, since so many of our students uh, worked with their families, cutting wood, building, and such. The dropout rate was very big, and we got that down to hardly anything. I brought back all the kids who had dropped out uh, over the last four years. Wow. Um, and about half of them graduated. Um, and so we were doing real well. And uh, then it really became, I don't know, I think you call it a political issue that we had our kids doing internships, so they were out in the community, not just in the classroom. Um, they called me Doc, which some people thought was disrespectful. <laughs> um and we integrated subjects. We got kids to really think. And so then what happened is a school board, uh, a, I think it was a seven-person school board, uh, who was all in favor and hired me, those school boards changed. And uh, so it changed to a 4-3 against me rather than being a 6-1 for me when it was hired when I was hired, and uh, they proposed to not um, uh, renew my contract. And I thought I'd done a great job, and my first school was pretty well-known in the country. This school was starting to get very well-known. We were the first school 
in the Coalition of Essential Schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I had to fight back, and it became a two-year battle. And so uh, it, it, it's a, a board election, really. So if you won the board election, it switches to 4-3 for you. If it doesn't, it goes the other way. And the amazing thing, this is a town of 3,500 people, so it became very political. Kids loved me. Some of their parents didn't. So you'd see signs on their front lawn (laughs) voting for the candidate who supported me and the candidate who didn't. And um, uh, then they had the election, and we won one of the candidates, and the other was a tie. And the way they break a tie in the state of New Hampshire is they flip a coin. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, I had a T-shirt, uh, heads I stay as principal, tails I leave. Um, but at 5 to 12, uh, Governor Sununu put a, um, uh, a footnote in to redo the election, and I won. So the movie is somebody that was doing the town newspaper, the next town, uh, ended up writing a book. It was picked up. NBC did a movie, and it was kind of cool because... One, I got to be there. Two, they weren't trying to make it dramatic. And so it allowed me to have something where 30 million people watched to talk about education. You know, it wasn't meant to be about me. It was about the fight for better education. And that's the most amazing part of it. I mean, you know, hats off to you for fighting. And what I just laugh about thinking and visualizing as you're telling the story, Dennis, um, of you dividing, quote unquote, this town because you were successful in new and different ways and you were pushing the edge of convention is that they probably thought they were going to shut you down by fighting. And instead, they made you stronger and they made you right. And they and they made this cause bigger. I mean, this is this is what you've devoted your life to. And it started so much of this started with discussions and Ted Sizer and the Coalition of Essential Schools so many years ago, which is no one size fits all. And that to put kids into these boxes and say, this has to work for you because this is the school system we're paying for. So, you know, just hang in there is just irrelevant these days. Yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing is that if their data was great, but their data was horrible on their kids. It was like uh, the school was, was just in such bad shape. So you would think even though they had different views about their school versus uh, um, what we were trying to produce, it was producing results. So... Um, and the other piece, you, you, you hit it exactly right. Uh, they made me very well known. I got more job offers during that time. Um, I stayed uh, for another six years because it really told me that the community um, had a mandate to support me and, and gave me an opportunity to pull the community together. So, uh, And there were tapes, Steve Croft from 60 Minutes, one of their offshoots did a piece on it. West 57th, and uh, and I knew lots of people were watching, mm-hmm. so you're 100% right. It wasn't just my battle. Um, it was a battle. Are we going to let innovation come in, or are we going to run from it? You know, so. it's amazing when you think about all of the great people out there in our classrooms and our schools that want to do similar things but really can't afford um, – 
mentally or physically to have to fight the system every day when they wake up, right? I mean, so who who have the books and movies about? The Jaime Escalanes, the Ron Clark with the baseball bat walking through the schools of, um, you know, the Joe Clark, the Ron Clark, uh, the different people who have dared to challenge the status quo. We celebrate them, and then we go back to doing business as usual. What is it going to take for us to break through this, Dennis? Well... It's a great question. <laughs> and, maybe, and maybe it lies in your, in your answer, which is the college unbound. Maybe it's about educating more adults to think differently. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I, I think, uh, you know, you're never as satisfied as you'd like to be that you win every student, you know. And I remember the day where I relaxed a little. It was my toughest student in New Hampshire, and she had dropped out of school, and she was a terror. And I saw her in the grocery store wheeling her baby, and she was the nicest, kindest girl I, I had seen to me in general and thanking me. And it kind of said to me that this stuff takes generations. You know, we expect it to happen now. You know, Native Americans talk about two generations to really change their culture. And so I, I felt that as long as we gave her the love and the education, and even though we failed in quotation marks, her kid was going to be better and feel different about education because of the education her mother got. Mm-hmm. And I feel that a lot here, too. Now, in, in my high school here, when I get frustrated, um, I'm now getting my kids who graduated their kids, okay? And most of my students here are the first to graduate from high school. So now their kids have somebody that's a role model for them. So... I think we got to just keep staying with it in a way and hope that we educate this, this group now that becomes parents and thinks about education in a different way. And the college piece is, you know, most of the people I'm running the college for underserved adults. So it's uh, um, average age 35. A lot of people dropped out of school when they were 18, when life came Uh, got in the way, and then they tried online, that didn't work, and they're returning. And they're returning because here are the two things they say. They can't move up, so they're a single mom with three kids making 30 grand, and they want to be a model for their kid. They go, how can I tell my kid to go to college if I'm not going to college? So they bring their kids to class. So I saw a woman the other day, she brought her 11-year-old to the class, and she sees her mom, Get up in the morning, send their kid to work, she go to work, pick up her kid, come to class, do homework, that kid's going to go to college, okay? And that's the exciting part. So I think it's kind of like working at all ends. Yes. You know, we have a, a sorry I'm carrying on, but we have a, no, no. we're just taking on, it's our youngest group, a group of, there's a charter school here in Rhode Island called Noel Academy, and it's for young moms. And one of their teachers was applying to college unbound, one of their teacher aides, and she said, my girls could come here. She said, otherwise, they're not going anywhere. Well, we're taking 17 of their graduates, um, and what this is doing, they're all 19 years old. They all have a child one or two years old and would be caught. And what I said to them at orientation, the hope is, as your kids start school, you're getting your bachelor's degree. That makes all, we know the data. So it's, again, I feel I'm working on early childhood work by working with the, their mom, too. 
too. And, so. and your big picture learning schools are are in lots of different, like you have many schools or programs in schools. Explain how this works. I mean, ultimately, what you're saying right now about that mom and what you're saying about the college and what you started with big picture learning is this notion that you have these small learning environments where students go at their own pace, right? Yes. And, 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 how does, and how does one go at their own pace? Like, how do you tie it together? A lot of people are confused about that. I hear them say, Dennis, things like, well, then how do you measure them? And how do you make sure they're learning at their own pace? And yeah. a lot of confusion, I think, abounds. Yeah. And I think one of the bigger problems, Tini, is that we as a country haven't decided what learning is. Okay? So some people say learning is defined by what they get on the test. Other people will say learning is defined by does a person know themselves and can solve problems. So the problem is a lot of these arguments come from people have different views of what learning is. So what we do so differently, I mean, here's the good news. The good news is we started a school here in Providence, Rhode Island. Commissioner Peter McWalters asked us to do the school, and we started with 50 students. And the schools are built around, it's not just at their own pace. They each have their own curriculum, but the skills underneath it are what's important. So they are all learning to problem solve. They're all learning to think creatively. They all have to learn to write. But one may be learning this through his love for animals and intern at a vet, where another's working in a law office, okay? Mm-hmm. So... The evaluation is not as easy because you're not all reading the same book. Um, And the students have to present by standing in front of a room every nine weeks of their colleagues, parents, um, you know, their their other students, and speak about what they've learned. So you can't BS it. You can't say, oh, well, I do homework every night when the mom's sitting there. You can't say, start talking about in legalese when your lawyer mentors there. So that's what's made us so successful is we're keying in to each student's interest and passion. And then, you know, our saying that actually um, Gates uses is relationships, relevance, and rigor. So the relationships we know, the relevance is, it's not just relevant to let's talk about the politics of today because some of the kids don't care. It's what's relevant for them. So a kid had a, uh, you know, a, a brother die in a gun shooting. Her project was researching, studying um, all about gun violence. Now, we have a responsibility to how does the science get in there, but it's more of how to think like a scientist, and that's what colleges tell you, how to think like a historian. And even we started 24 years ago, but even in today's age, you can find that data. It's how to use that data. So Gates found us, our first graduating class, and over the next 10 years, we got um, over $20 million to spread the model. And since 2010, we've been doing it through contract, and we have 71 schools in the U.S., in 27 cities, and over 100 internationally. Oh, that's just pick it up. Kazakhstan's got a school. Mumbai's got a school. And the difference is, sorry a second, no. is that we're an education management system, 
as opposed to a charter management system. Mm -hmm. So we don't own anything. And so you bring, through big picture learning, you bring the the theory, you bring the practice, you bring the training so that they can impart that on their own students. Exactly, exactly. And we don't try to, hell, I don't know how to do a school in Kazakhstan. So it's taking our design principles and saying to the people in Kazakhstan or, or... or Mumbai or East Africa, you know, you know your country. Right. Well, you what know, does it mean to help a student do a project in your country? In another country. I mean, I'm fascinated, and I've talked about it before on the show and with other guests, how much other countries are, are hungry and grabbing all of these sort of new innovations we're coming up with. I've talked to Ashley Berner, Dr. Ashley Berner from Johns Hopkins, who wrote about pluralism and American public education and no one way to school. And yet here, while our students are dying for this stuff and our teachers really want to explore, we continue to reject so often, um, whether at the grassroots level or politically, the whole notion of having these new kind of personalized learning modules. What is it going to take, Dennis Lipke, to get us all to where we appreciate this importance of diverse learning, that relationships, relevance, and rigor? Yeah. Um, One, I don't know. Two, I was hoping that the charter school movement is, you know, you know better than I, but one of the ideas behind it was to be a model for their districts. And that never took off as much as we would like. Um, And, you know, I kind of thought that after all these years, there wouldn't be a, quote, charter school. That's what districts would be. Okay, they have lots of options um, for people to go to. So they could follow their passion, their interest. People have some uh, skin in the game by picking their school. So it's happened in places, but uh, that's that's one of the things. The other thing I think, and I said this unknowingly 24 years ago, that maybe when the technology even gets better than it is now, there's just no reason to sit in the school in the way we do it. That's a great point. And that maybe that um, starts forcing people to look at the student and knowing how easy it is to get all this other information um, to apply to things they care about. Mm-hmm. And I think the more we repeat what you've often said, that students should be at the center of their own education, and then you combine it with the growth and improvement of technology and access to learning in all different ways, people begin to begin to see. I mean, that look, most people who have kids now, grandkids, know that students are different and that the world is obviously different than when we were all showing up at desks like – you were in Detroit. You were in a traditional system, which, yeah. by the way, is fascinating to me. You grew up in Detroit. You turned out really well. Were schools <laughs> were schools as bad then as they are now? They couldn't have been. Well, as a middle class kid, um, and you didn't know they were bad because you were doing school. Mm-hmm. I wrote a piece. I forget the guy's name. The professor at Harvard who wrote an article. This is what I used to think, and this is what I think now. And he got a lot of response to it. And so he did a little book. Um, I'll remember his name in a minute. And asked me to write a chapter. And I wrote that I knew school was a game in seventh grade. But 
you know, one, students are powerless. Two, I wasn't trying to be radical. I was trying to have a good time and get through, right? Mm -hmm. But I knew, you know, I did these extra credit reports. I just pasted pictures on a piece of paper and books my dad brought me. I turned them in. I got A's. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, our science teacher had us put posters up that we all copied out of the encyclopedia. So I knew it was like a game. And but didn't do much because I feel, I don't know, I just went through the process. And then um, when I taught psychology, my first six weeks, I was just telling somebody was to how to think about the education system we have. And then, and then slowly I got into becoming an educator. I was really more a psychologist. So, um, yeah, you know, too many people, it's about, here, here's the thing, when I, when I look to hire teachers, um, it's more about, it's, it's not about believing in what we're talking about. You can get a lot of people going, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's being able to let go of the stuff we grew up with. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, you're trying to run a more personalized class and it gets a little loud. What do you do? You're a new teacher. Okay, everyone, take out this book. We're going to look, turn the page 32. <laughs> okay. So... It's just hard to, um, it's not hard to believe in something, it's hard to change your behavior. It's hard to embrace noise thinking that's a good thing, right? When you were raised or trained to believe, yeah, that you've got to squash it. I remember, um, you know, I remember watching and learning initially when I got into this work uh, about some of the practices they would teach my friends who were who were going through uh, schools of education about how to turn off the light when people were getting loud <laughs> or, you know, or do the cutting and pasting when it's quite the antithesis of what students um, should be doing or what they feel comfortable with. So a lot of students then that you're uh, beginning to help in College Unbound were probably recipients of schools that didn't meet their needs because you talk about College Unbound primarily as being for college dropouts, Yes, which is a great title, right? There used to be such social stigma with being a college dropout, but it sounds like you're saying, no, 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 you don't have to be a dropout. There's a different way to do it. One, there's still a stigma with that word dropout. Um, and I look at it as the system's fault as much as the student's fault. And it could be called a push-out, you know. Mm-hmm. It could be called a step-out. Um, but you're right. One of the things I start thinking about, and this is a nice platform to be able to talk about this, all these foundations that have supported great schools and innovation, okay, in high schools, uh, I would hope everybody would look a little closer now, including my schools, and say, what's happened over the next bunch of years? Are the kids going on to good jobs? Are they lasting in school? And you know the data. If you're poor, regardless of, of color, and you start college, that means 50% of the poor kids have dropped out already before they got in. Only 11% graduate college. Mm-hmm. That ain't their fault. You know. So in the same way we're talking about high schools, I say, you know, colleges, everyone's saying, Students got to be college ready. I'm saying, you know, colleges need to be student ready. Right. And until they say, well, this kid wasn't well prepared, I'm throwing him out. Until they say, this is who I got, you know. You know, imagine we did that in kindergarten or preschool. Well, no, home no good, this kid's not ready. They'd never get going. So 
Um, I believe it's important, and I think it's going to happen. You know some high percent, like over 50, of the number of college students are now over 24 years old. I've heard the figure up to 74. Right. And we still look, and when you say college, I think of my niece who just graduated from Berkeley, but that's not who the students are. Right. And so I think people are going to start opening their eyes to it's nice that we tried a lot of good things, but if you do good things and send people into a system that's not great, they ain't going to make it. So, and part of my role here, you know, I've always had good schools. I've run a school in New York, I run a school in New Hampshire, but part of mine was, my goal here was to make the students so strong that they couldn't be beat up by the world. You know, that they were really committed to learning in a deep way. Right. Uh, and you know some of the data of some of your better schools uh, that were great as high schools. You look at their college data and they're bad. Right. You know, and it's, it's not whose fault is it? It's fault that the colleges are elite places that teach to the middle class. So don't get me going. Lucky it's close to one. Right. Well, no. <laughs> You know, it is such a challenge to help people think differently about this, though. So here you have a college designed for adults because, you know, these students aren't going to go running back and trying to get into some residential institution after because, you know, half of it is half of it is about being an adolescent and growing up and half is it about getting those those, um, you know, mindset and skills that you think you yeah. can be, have a job. So what do you do differently than the traditional, quote unquote, school that a student is being pushed to go back to? So the, the bad news is they dropped out when they were 18. They've all tried to go back at some time with an online school or a community college, and they've all dropped out again. So we just looked. You know, I had one, one young man, not young, 49 years old, said he's, he's been in and out eight times. So we just really pay attention to the students. So... We meet one major time at night because they all have families and jobs, can't be out. Mm -hmm. So we have a three-hour session in the evening. Um, two, there's always food there. Three, there's always babysitting there. So some of the people tell me, when you said babysitting and food, I was there. We might think that's stupid and little, but it allows them to be there. And then during the week, they're talking online, which we shouldn't even use the word online anymore because that's how people communicate. Right. And we have professors that have the content, but it's not about remembering, just remembering the content. It's the use of content for their project, okay? So in the first four courses, we make everyone take. We have one major in organization, leadership, and change, because I tell the students it doesn't matter what you get your bachelor's degree in. You know, people just like to see it, and it's worked. Every single person has moved up in their job or got a new job the day they get their degree or even exactly, before, which is sad on one level, you know, and it's changing a little. Google's now, you don't need a degree to work at Google, but uh, it's not changing if you're poor and if you're poor of color. You need a degree. And then everyone is not taking random courses. Here's my other beef. I got to go fast because I see the <laughs> clock, man, is that. All these programs are offering a lot of support to students. We're giving them extra tutoring. We're giving this. And that all helps, but it just helps a little bit. We've completely changed the curriculum. So it's, again, it's each student's project, 
okay, that a woman uh, had her child die when she was the child was young, mm. never processed it. Her project was to study the disease, do a church service, start fundraising, bring people together. So whatever the course, if the course is in writing, that's what she wrote about. When the, the course was um, contextualizing your work, that's what she did. When the course was, you know, she could take a course in science around the illness. So, and the person next to her wanted to help the, the work she was doing and developed a dashboard for her organization in which she got a raise for. So they weren't dropping out because they were doing something they cared about, okay? And they were getting the courses. We have adjunct professors from Brown, Providence College, people who want to teach this group, and they have what we call a lab faculty on the ground. So that cohort model gets them to feel, they feel like such a group. So when one says, I'm dropping out, man, I just can't do it. My kid's so sick, I can't make it. The other say, I'll come babysit. You shouldn't right. drop out. I got two kids. So it's, a, it's the support. But it's also the curriculum that has meaning. You know, one of our guys, we're inside the prison teaching also, and then they come out and move into us. Um, one guy got out of prison. You know, he was 40-some years old, two kids, three jobs, went to a college. One, they wouldn't accept all his credits. Mm-hmm. He had 80 credits. They said, we'll give you 40. Two, the first class, um, uh, it was a man of color. The first class was a survey of Western Civ. Oh. He wouldn't have made it through because no. it didn't make sense, not because he wasn't smart. So also our job is to get people through. So we have a course that teaches them how to turn all their life experience into courses, okay? So they can gain a half a year, a year, depending what they've done. There are the CLEP exams that you know. Right. Anyone that speaks Spanish can take those exams and get 12 hours college credit. Um, we have something learning in public. If they're doing, let's see, it's some, somebody is um, coming with me for four meetings uh, with some top people. They can write that up, goes in front of a committee, and then get one credit for that. So the idea is to use who you are. You're 49 years old or you're 35 years old. Use that experience to get in and out and to be transformed. That's the key. So. And once you transform and get that credential, which, yes, today we still need and is recognized, then you have that confidence and that understanding of what it takes for you to pursue a much more productive life or just a life of happiness. And whatever that is, is what all students should have the access to. And I'm just grateful that you've devoted your lifetime uh, to making this happen. Dr. Dennis Litke, co-founder, co-director, Met School, co-founder of the Big Picture Learning, president of College Unbound. Uh, check out his uh, information website, which are all linked to our podcast description. Dennis, thank you so much for joining me today on Reality Check. Thank you, and thank you for continuing to do all your work, Jeannie. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this edition of Reality Check. You can subscribe to Reality Check at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and tune in and never miss an episode. Visit us online at edreform.com and follow CER on Twitter at edreform and me, Jeannie Allen. I look forward to exploring the world of education with you and another prominent guest next time. See you then.